If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit, and in today's episode, I'm excited to chat with my good friend, the mayor of Stockton, California, Michael Tubbs. Michael is the current mayor of Stockton. He's been mayor since 2017. When he was elected, he became the youngest mayor in Stockton's history, as well as its first African-American mayor. Michael has captained his city through bankruptcy and dissolvency, launched the nation's leading universal basic income pilot, and helped lead a citywide effort to greatly decrease the murder rate, which was peaking in the year that he took office. One thing to keep in mind when listening to this podcast is that it was recorded earlier in the pandemic cycle at the beginning of what we've been facing um, and before the national uprisings and protests tied to George Floyd's murder, which I'm certain Michael would have had really incredible insight. And I'm also certain he's taking great action in the city of Stockton around the issue. So governing from home? Part-time, part-time. So I, I try to model good behavior. Um, so I go to City Hall only when absolutely necessary. Um, other than that, I'm, I'm home. So probably 50-50, work from home in my little home office and then going to City Hall when I have to. And I know part of leadership is being responsive, and but I know how many different programs you had going and how many different agendas I'm sure you're managing and then coronavirus comes and changes everything. How how are you holding up? How are you reacting to this? Uh, the, the COVID-19 virus has put a lot of things in, in focus in terms of, A, what the city as an organization needs to be better at, particularly a muscle we've been trying to build, and now we're forced to really exercise it, which is communicating um, to the public clearly and consistently, but also just really kind of shining lights on some of the issues we've been fighting for for the last couple of years. 
Um, the fact of the matter is there's zip codes in Stockton that have the highest rates of diabetes and the highest rates of asthma um, in the state and in the nation. And we know that those diseases are even more susceptible to COVID-19 coronavirus. Um, we know that uninsured populations face a unique crisis. So it's just been a, a forcing function and causing us to kind of focus on the fundamentals of taking care of people and, and providing that baseline level of support to allow people to have the resilience to get through this pandemic. And it's been also almost a an acknowledgement that the things we're focused on from piloting a basic income to um, fighting for our small business owners to ensuring that undocumented people felt they're part of our community were the right things to focus on because now those things are becoming part of the national conversation about what's a proper response to this global pandemic. And, you know, your background is a little wild. You're 29 years old. I know that you, you know, graduated from Stanford in 2012 and essentially immediately ran for city council, correct? Yeah, yeah. So I graduated in 2012 during my senior year. Um, I was taking classes and driving back and forth between Stockton and Stanford, running for a city council in my old council district, which I used to, which is the same district I grew up in. Ended up winning that and spent, have spent the last seven years, um, my roaring 20s, um, in local government in the city of Stockton, California. And you've been mayor since 2017. As, yep. Which is all just so mind blowing to me. You know, like I think that, you know, as far as, you know, mayors go of major cities in the United States, there's not many that, you know, I'm 30, I'm 35. There's not many my age, let alone your age. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's evident in your track record, your open-mindedness, be it, you know, experiments with uh, guaranteed income and UBI or, you know, the focus that you've put on education, but you've also had to deal with like some serious, you know, like generational issues, like pulling the city out of, out of bankruptcy. It's, it's, and I guess that's maybe an over credit. I know that you, you know, the, 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 the city was moving out of bankruptcy, but, you know, but leading, leading through that type of change is not something that many 20 year olds experience or do well. Yeah. The last seven years have actually been wild um, in terms of just the circumstances and the situations and the crises um, that I've been privileged to lead in and lead with um, the community in. So when I ran for city council in 2012, we had just declared bankruptcy, to your point. And we also had the highest murder rate per capita in this country. Um, when I was first elected mayor in 2017, that was after our previous mayor had been indicted by the FBI. Um, and, and kind of rebuilding public trust in the institution of the office of the mayor and, and helping people understand what the mayor, how a mayor acts and performs and what a mayor can actually do. And now um, with this COVID-19, it's been one crisis to another. But I, I would also say from the first crisis that I mentioned with the bankruptcy, we're now the second most fiscally healthy city in the state. Um, on the homicide front, we had back-to-back years of less than 40 homicides this past year and the year before, which was the first time and the only time in the entire previous decade we did that. And those were two of our safest years in the last 30 um, in the city. So we, 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 we're learning how to deal with crisis, but also to re- emerge from crises a little bit more resilient and a little bit more together as a community. And I'm, and I'm hopeful. So you're, you're, you're a little battle tested for this moment. I mean, this is unprecedented, but luckily it's not the first time we've had late nights and conversations around questions that don't have answers yet. So myself, the city employees team and and the community 
I think we're all um, as ready as we can be for this challenge and, and with the, a, a degree of humility, but also a, an understanding of the responsibility we have to do something. Um, we're just doing the best we can. Well, you mentioned two pretty, you know, big accomplishments, uh, you know, with, with, with taking the city from, you know, uh, a fiscal deficit to one of the most healthy, you know, economies um, in the state and, you know, taking the murder rate down. Do you mind giving us a little bit more, you know, background on the process for those? Like those are such two huge, you just sort of like glossed over it a little bit, but I'd love for you to give us you know, a little bit of insight. Yeah. Well, on the fiscal solvency front, when I was elected to city council, we had a great team of lawyers and actuaries and others who put together like a, a fiscal forecast for us. And, and we were able to negotiate a settlement with our creditors and the bankruptcy judge approved it. Um, and we had this model. And then my job as a council member was to convince my colleagues to remain fidelity to the model and to institutionalize it. Because what happened is a couple years after bankruptcy, we looked like we had a lot more money. We had a lot of one-time funds moving in and there was a, so much need in the city there was a temptation to start spending or start spending more than we could actually afford over the course of 30 years, even though it made sense in the moment. Um, so as a council member, I put forth a proposal to change our reserve policy um, to increase the amount we put in reserves for a moment like this um, and to also make sure that we had stuff saved for a rainy day. Um, I, made our, I made it so that anytime we make a new budgetary ask or a budgetary decision that at least has to go through our long-range financial plan, which is our best attempt at fortune fortune casting. Um, it's actually um, developed a model that helps us at least give us a best guess as to what decision this fiscal what fiscal impact this decision could have for the next five, 10 years. And I think those two things have kind of gave us a strong foundation. So even when we decide to spend money, we have at least some understanding of what the trade-offs are. Um, so I think the hustle there was to just really, really, really remain committed to a process or, or, or to a decision um, that was made in a moment of time that may look different in the current moment of time. And also listen to experts, listen to people who are smarter than you, like actuaries and economists and other people who who, who understand how this thing works. Um, and then on the homicide reduction side, um, we've just really hustled and looked for best practices in other cities. And we, and we found two. Um, the first is one called Project Ceasefire or Operation Ceasefire. And the second is called Advanced Peace. And we've actually talked about the ceasefire model, I think before when we first met in 2014 at, 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 at Summit Series. But really the idea was to identify um, the less than 1% of the guys who were committing 80% of our violent crime and messaging to them that, that the crime and levels of violence were unacceptable. So we were running that program, saw some success, but not at the level um, we needed to. So I looked and found another model called the Advanced Peace Model that comes from the Office of Neighborhood Safety in Richmond, which is similar to the ceasefire model, except it extends with a fellowship where um, guys who are thought to actively be involved in gun violence are given the chance to be fellows and to earn cash stipends for f- fulfilling fellowship goals. And that took a lot of fundraising, a lot of um, community um, meetings to gather because the model was like, why are we rewarding people for bad? People thought the model was, why are we rewarding people for bad behavior? Um, it took talking with my council members, getting them on board. But because of those two programs being married together, one being led by the city and the police department, our peacekeepers, our violence interruption workers, and then one being led by the community and our advanced peace folks, 
have really led to kind of significant reductions in, 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 in violent crime, our gun crime. We had a 40% reduction in 2018, and in 2019, we practically matched that number. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. And I think our, our community, our police department, our violence workers, and the men themselves deserve a lot of credit. But that those two things are probably the things I'm most proud of um, in the last couple of years, actually. And I want to talk about UBI and I want to talk more about the things that you're doing today, just because it's so unique to get to talk to someone that's actually leading, you know, a community like this, um, in, in such a crisis moment, it's all the, all the, all the glory in a sense, but also all the opportunity for, for failure or embarrassment. I, I imagine you stay pretty cool under pressure. Yeah, I, I try my best to remain um, focused on the job at hand and focused on everything that's not me. Because it's it, when I start thinking about what this, what if I mess up or how does this look, it's not going to be good. But if I'm focused on, okay, how do we deliver for people, nine times out of ten we make, we make the right decision. And you have to be cool under pressure because, I mean, this job is all pressure. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing I've always admired in you is you've gotten people that are on, you know, perceived opposite sides of issues to come together to compromise and and resolve and move move the move things forward. For instance, things like, you know, the relationship between the community in Stockton and the police force. How how talk to us a bit about that because I think it's a really unique skill. Yeah, well, I- Particularly because Stockton is so diverse. It's the most diverse city in the country. It's ideologically diverse. It's about 60% Democrat, 40% um, Republican. Um, my council is four Republicans, two Democrats. So uh, I'm constantly put in positions where we have to lead, lead in and lean in on relationships and empathy and kind of getting um, folks organized around kind of collective values and, and, and mutual interests. So um, and our police chief is a great embodiment of that because he's led a lot of our reconciliation efforts. So last year, the city of Stockton actually had the most significant reduction in officer-involved shootings in the state. Um, and he's been leading efforts around procedural justice training and implicit bias training. And, and we're actually now training other police departments. But I think we realize because we don't have as many resources, because we don't have um, an echo chamber where everyone thinks like us, like everyone in, in on every issue, that we're really forced to forge real relationships that come in handy when it's time to make a decision, when it's time to lead, and when it's time to, to move forward. Or in a time like crisis like this, when it's time for everyone to, to come together, even though we may vote for different presidents, we may vote for different senators, we may diagnose the source of problems um, differently. When it comes to problem solving, we try. I try to get everyone focused on the problem and sort of the solutions at our disposal, regardless of one's predispositions as to why said problem exists. If that makes sense. And I'm curious, who is we? Like, who is your, you know, uh, leadership council? Who do you work with on all these things? Yeah, I think it depends on the issue. So, um, on city issues, the we is the city council. Are my colleagues who are elected to help serve the city. Um, city department heads, our city manager, et cetera. Um, sometimes the we is our other government bodies we have to work with, like like county board of supervisors, the school districts. Yeah, I guess I guess the reason I asked the question, I want to know like who do you who do you turn to for advice? Are there like other mayors or like people in your network that you'll hit up and say, hey, this is an issue that I'm trying to work through. How did you? deal with it? Or like, who, who do you turn to? Yeah, absolutely. I think one, one of the best things about being mayor 
has been this network of amazing mayors I'm able to lean on. So I talk to a group of mayors almost every day, if not every other day, just about what they're working on, what they're doing. Sometimes it's banter. Sometimes it's like, hey, I'm stressed out today. Sometimes it's like, look at this crazy tweet someone sent me. Um, but that, that's been really helpful. And then we also have um, mayoral convenings organized by folks where we have, like Bloomberg's doing one now around COVID response where 300, 400 mayors once a week get together and hear from folks like Bill Clinton and John Hopkins, um, infectious disease experts and folks who led the response to Katrina or the response to the oil spill, kind of leading us and helping us think through the best way to lead. So definitely those, the, the mayoral network is a network I, I lean on heavily. The California Big City Mayors Coalition, we meet two to three times a week on conference calls at night, um, just talking about some of the issues we're having, how to approach it, et cetera. So those have been huge assets and and, 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 and building blocks, um, particularly during this time. And also there's community members like uh, a good banker friend of mine, Michael Duffy, um, and Lane Luntow, who runs our foundation, school board president, uh, folks on my staff and others are run decisions by as well. So I'm, I think I'm really, I'm in a great position because I have um, just really amazing folks to go to and to think with and to bounce ideas off of. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind-the-scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. 
from award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. How is your UBI program going, your universal basic income program going? It's been fascinating to watch over the past year just how the conversation has changed um, around the topic. I remember when we first launched, when we first launched in 2017, we announced we we're going to do it. I got more, are you crazies? And all oh, this could be a good idea. And thanks to some of the work being done by folks like Andrew Yang and Chris Hughes and others and helping popularize the concept, um, the last six months, even before COVID-19, was spent with presidential candidates coming to Stockton, trying to learn or calling, trying to learn and understand what we were learning from the basic income pilot. And now during the COVID response, everyone's saying we need to give cash to people directly and we could trust them to make good decisions. So it's been just phenomenal to watch kind of the arc of the idea. In terms of actual program, it's been going really well. I think we've heard the past month from folks who are receiving the $500 a month um, that it's been a lifesaver and a blessing. I'm sure, especially right now. Oh my gosh. So like, we don't, we're so, we feel so blessed and, and I, we feel so bad for all the others who are in the program. We've heard from folks that have been able to leave abusive relationships because they're now financially, more financially independent and have the ca- liquid cash for a down payment on a new apartment. Um, we've heard from people um, like my friend Tomas, who, who talked about how the $500 was enough for him to interview for a job, but not because he needed to pay the interview, but because he was working an hourly job with no pay time off, which means any time spent off was food not on the table for his wife and kids. So the $500 allowed him to actually take a time off work to interview. He ended up getting the job, and now he's making more money with stable hours, working less, um, with union protections, pay time off, and it, it's it's just been incredible. And what we've what we found is that the vast majority of money over the past year has been spent on food and utilities and on things that we would spend food on. So every month at StockTheDemonstration.org, we have like a data dashboard that that sh- shows sort of how the money is being spent. But I think beyond that date, those data points, what's been most inspiring for me is just how it's really illustrated to me um, just the inherent dignity of people. And that not being attached to work, number one. And that number two, that, that, the, that the people who work the hardest in our society are often compensated the least. And particularly women who do all type of work that isn't compensated. Um, like women who work minimum wage jobs or work in retail, it's actually cheaper um, for them not to work and to do child rearing and, and domestic work and, 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 and not pay for child care than it is to work. And they're not compensated for that. They do that in their own home. So it's it's been it's just been eye-opening around sort of the type of society I think we should live in and we deserve to live in. I think COVID is really putting it into perspective. Like it's been crazy. A week ago on Easter Sunday, the Pope sent a letter out saying it's time to consider a universal basic wage. And it's been it's just it's just been a, a real honor to have Stockton in the center of a conversation about what this what should society look like post-COVID. 
And what's unbelievable is like 180 days ago, you were still kind of like a wild guy or for, you know, what a, what a hyper creative wild move to try something like this. It's the first, you know, major program of its kind. And, you know, we just did a national UBI, you know, in, injection, of course, you know, with the stimulus that just went out and I, and, you know, perhaps there'll be more, you know, um, I'm curious for you, what are some of the things that you think we should be paying more attention to today in American politics? If you look at sort of our generation, millennials, um, Gen Y, um, just folks under 40, their entire, our entire lives have been marked by um, government austerity, a pulling back of the safety net, a, a fight for, for bare minimum concessions, at the same time of really drastic global events from COVID-19 to the Great Recession to 9-11 to the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and have seen like our, our futures mortgaged in, 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 in some respects. So, so I think one thing to watch for is what, what's the policy response to a whole swath, a, whole, a large demographic of folks who haven't seen GI bills, who, who haven't seen um, creation of, new, of a, a new deal, who, who, who haven't seen um, sort of the best of American democracy work in terms of a policy perspective, not, not, notwithstanding some of the wins around marriage equality and Obamacare, et cetera, but just given the, the, the sheer enormity of, of pandemics and conflicts we've, we've been engaged in for literally our, the entirety of our adult lives, the, the the debt bubble, just sort of what, how is that going to necessitate or how is those lived experiences going to push the politics in a way that's much more bold and transformative and in tune to what should be a bare minimum in any civilized society is something I think to watch for. Um, and, and then number two, I think, and on what to watch for, what I'm watching for is just the massive impact of misinformation, um, propaganda, um, targeted foreign missions around confusing and selling the same amount of American people. Like, what does that mean for democracy's ability to actually answer um, these challenges? We have people protesting a virus, protesting COVID-19. So I think those two kind of tensions in terms of what folks will be clamoring for, just given the entirety of their, their lives in, in, in this country and in this world, and also sort of this, this misinformation um, mass propaganda, mind shifting thing, nebulous thing that's paralyzing our, our democracy in terms of answering the challenges, I think will be interesting to watch over the next couple of years. You know, I, I have this theory that we're sort of being intergenerationally gaslighted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I didn't really fully understand the, the, the definition of gaslight. Gaslight is like if your boyfriend's cheating on you or your girlfriend's cheating on you and you know, they convince you that you're the crazy one, that's <laughs> gaslighting, right? Yeah. So it's like, you know, the ap apprentice system, you know, in feudal England made sense then because there weren't enough jobs to go around. So they needed people to only have one job, by the way, and they also needed everyone to have to apprentice first. And it feels like what better way than to get a generation to accept, you know, lower wages, lower home ownership, than tell us that we all think that we deserve trophies and that, you know, we all <laughs> expect something for nothing. And it's like, I just don't, I don't remember that. I don't know those millennials and Gen Y. And, and as I understand it, this is the largest voting block essentially until the day we die, right? Like millennials are the biggest generation. So, 
you know, it's, it's interesting to think, to combine those things in my head and hearing you talk about, it, it's like, man, that's really not a left rail issue to say that we not only need, you know, more support for all people, but when you see, you know, in this moment with coronavirus, how desperately we actually need federal responses, coordinated responses, you know, organization. And I feel like this is a, such a run on statement, but I'm just, you know, I, I want to open the floor to you as well. I feel like intellectualism is kind of coming back. <laughs> like it hasn't been that cool to be smart for a minute now. Like nobody, it's like, whatever facts. I hear you that misinformation is like this huge issue. I also find that, you know, at least you know, in a, in a larger audience than cared about the reality of, of situations and having real, real news. It matters a lot more when it's truly life or death and versus like a team that we associate with. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I didn't realize this till I, one of my friends was saying, it was like a meme he posted. He <laughs> was like coronavirus, Iraq war, Hurricane Katrina, Afghanistan war, 9-11, great recession literally my entire life. And I was like, that is interesting. And I'm looking at other times in our nation's history when we've had pandemics, there was a massive federal response, whether it was kind of land grant, giving people land to settle um, after the American Revolution or creating the social safety net system um, through the New, New Deal and Great Society programs to um, the GI Bill. Like there's been massive government investments in people and allowing people to reestablish after pandemics. And we have yet to see that at any point with the myriad of crises I just listed off. So I, I definitely think um, it's a generational, when you look at sort of the folks who are making the decisions, who have benefited directly from massive government interventions, from public school education, higher education being $75 a, 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 a class or something crazy like that. Yeah, it, it's, it's actually unconscionable and it's unacceptable. Um, and, and I do think where there's going to be more tensions, there's going to be more calls, there's going to be more rallies, there's going to be more protests because there's a massive amount of, of need and not need because people are making bad decisions and not need because people are lazy, but need because folks are doing a lot more with a lot less resources than generations before them have had to do. What would you do if you were president for 72 hours? What are the things that you would try to get done? If I was president for 72 hours, um, number one, I would definitely establish sort of a, a, a basic income, a guaranteed income, whatever you want to call it, um, starting with this COVID-19 crisis, but really just extending it after because we after effects and ripple effects. Um, number two, I would massively, 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 massively ramp up testing and contact tracing um, so that everyone who wants a test can get a test. I would make sure who was funded um, and, and that our medical um, create a clear national supply chain, et cetera. I would do that um, to just make sure we get through this crisis. And then number three, I would use the opportunity to kind of push our better angels and think about, especially given the price of crude oil now, um, how do we really accelerate our, um, our, in, our independence from fossil fuels and whether you call it a Green New Deal, uh, 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 whatever it is, but how do we use this moment, particularly in a time when people aren't working, to kind of do the infrastructure in a socially distancing, safe way, Green Deal type of things that need to, need to be done. Those would be the three things hopefully I could get done in 72 hours. That all sounds great. 
And honestly, if I think there's anyone who could achieve all of that in 72 hours, it would be you. And uh, honestly, on that note, given all that you've done and are capable of, what do you think enabled you early on to become exceptional? I think a lot of it just stems from kind of how I grew up. Um, my mom I and mean, grandmother were incredible, um, but they were single. Um, mom was in poverty. Um, so everything that had everything that to to accomplish anything required a network, whether it's getting to practice, whether it's getting help with SAT tests, whether it's getting help applying for college. Um, everything required a network um, inclu- of my family, but also extending outwards. So I think just that ext- the extreme situation which I grew up in, I think necessitated a lot of the skills I use now, particularly around um, just knowing how to take advantage of opportunities and how to leverage resources to get to um, a, a better end. So I, I think that's a big part of it. I also think um, part of it also has to go, again, back to upbringing with just being raised in, in, in the church and, and being told from a young age that despite the craziness you're, you're living in, that there's a plan for you, that, that God sees you and that you're supposed to do something. Um, so having a real sense of agency that, no, I, I can change this or this can change. And I can have a part in doing that, I think. Because, um, you know, half the stuff is really just attitude and mentality. Like, do you think this could get better? Do you think you could try this? Do you think it's worth it? Do you think it will change? I think a lot of it was just instilled in me and in that things aren't things don't happen to you, that you, you're you a co-creator or you should seek to be a co-creator in things. So I think that's part of it as well, just, just disposition. And then I think that the, the, the last part is sort of that, that why, right? Like I think people, the art of the hustle is, is really knowing what you hustle for or, or why you're hustling. And for me, it's to, I just really think that as a society, we deserve so much better. I think my city deserves so much better. I think that, um, and the better is out there and the better is attainable. <laughs> and, and, and there's models of what the better could look like. And I think particularly when I think of some of the marginalized people, the disenfranchised people um, in, in my community, that kind of what I think that's what calls out sort of gifts or talent or abilities or drive or energy or stamina that ordinarily wouldn't be called. But because the, the need is so great and it's and it's a worthy cause, I think it just necessitates sort of what the things you mentioned happening because the only way to, to make it happen. Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters, the theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. 
Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind-the-scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. You're such an experimental thinker. You're in such a highly specific governmental leadership role. And so you're one of the few people in our generation that gets to bring this type of thinking to these type of issues every day, all day long. So, so I'm curious, like, what are some of the ones that stick out, whether it's education or homelessness or like, what are, what are you, you know, you were early on UBI, like what's, what's next? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I think on the homelessness front, and I know some of my other, even older mayors are thinking along the same ways, it's really using this opportunity to purchase sort of hotels and motels, et cetera. So that when this crisis is over, we could just provide real pertinent supportive housing beds and masks to people who need it and who may not be able to pay. Um, so that's not super. It is kind of revolutionary because it's not being done yet, but, but it, it seems really simple. But that's sort of where my energy is on, on the homelessness and, and, and housing front. And, and what's interesting, particularly on homelessness, I think um, the most innovative solution or cadre of solutions for that issue um, are, are probably, I think, are going to be like some of the most basic and simple, like having enough mental health clinicians for people um, and, and having enough social workers for people um, and having enough drug treatment and rehab facilities. And, and I think it's just like, I think part of it's just that we just don't have a social safety net that's built around sort of wellness, that's built around preventing mental health, or that's built around responding to mental health before it becomes a homelessness issue. And it's going to be things like making sure that no one spends more than 30% of their income on rent so that there's housing at every income level. For I think I literally think the solutions for homelessness and housing and security would be some innovative like 3D printing and modular housing to make housing sizes go down and co-living spaces like dorms for sure. But I think that the scale or 
or the, the sexiest thing will be the not sexiest, like, basics. Like, we know people have to be able to afford rent, so rent should be capped at 30% of people's income, no matter where they live or how they live, for example. Or we know that some people won't be able to afford anything, or some people will need to be monitored while living. So we should have permanent supportive housing available for them if we don't want them living in. I think it's literally going to be stuff like that. And that the innovative thing will be how do you marshal public will, public dollars for those things? Because we have a very difficult feelings around who deserves what and who's worthy, who's deserving. And this is especially relevant to us as, as, as young parents and just particularly seeing how the limited hours I get to spend doing child rearing um, it's taxing. And, and, and my wife, who does even more, is really figuring out what does a universal child care look like? Um, and I know the Domestic Workers um, Alliance, led by Agent Poon, have, have a, 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 a white, white paper I've read about just universal basic care. Because when you're older, you're going to need care, you're going to need child care, et cetera. Like, what does that look like? I'm, I'm really excited um, to, to, to really drill, drill down on that because I think particularly post-COVID, where we're going to want people back in the economy or want people going to work, a huge subset of our community, particularly women, still won't be able to go back to work without affordable childcare or without some sort of universal childcare system. So I think those are kind of the, in terms of big new frontier, the new UBI, something around um, 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 childcare um, is what I'm going to spend a lot of energy and time thinking through. Yeah, it's wild that like a fifth of Americans can't afford diapers let alone childcare and how many children go to like these, you know, neighborhood uncertified, unsanctioned childcare, you know, solutions. Um, so you're forcing parents into really hard decisions. It's wild or how childcare for a infant or a one-year-old or two-year-old costs about the same as what someone would make working at a McDonald's or working a retail job. So it's like, that's like, it makes sense. It's a logical economic decision to say, you know, I'm going to remove myself from the labor force and take care of my kid because while I leave my kid for eight hours a day, just spend my whole check to give to someone else to watch my kid. It makes it really hard to invest in your kid too, you know, whether that's with the money that you're making or with your own time or energy. Yeah, it's 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 backward. And, and I think what's most revolutionary to answer your question and what, one of the things, the next UBI will be like universal basic values. Like in terms of as a society, we value family. Therefore, we sh- we deserve policies that look like universal childcare, paid family leave, um, longer paternity leave, et cetera. We value opportunities. We want to make sure, sh- like I think just really get into a sense of, and we have the starvate, the constitution, but really making it very clear for people that as a country, these are universally the things we value. And because these are the things we value, this is how we should act. It's, and, and, and helping kind of shift the conversation away from this is left wing or this is right wing. But like, this is what this means. If we really value this, this is what we should do, um, which may sound idealistic. But I think that's kind of the conversations we're going to have to have to get to where we need to go. And I think that would be extremely revolutionary, particularly in a time when Donald Trump is the president. <laughs> And, and when you think about yourself, you know, you go back to, you know, you're in Stockton in high school, you know, and the decisions that you made that empowered you, you know, as a young person to end up, you know, going on to live the life that you've lived and contribute to your community in such a huge way. You know, I often think about, okay, we make these investments in community, you know, we, we, we alleviate suffering, we improve the quality of life for everyone. 
what is the next step in your mind that you've seen that works? What, what can help us get into an abundance versus scarcity mentality, a, a mentality where we can experiment and create new things that have exponential value? It's going to be a mix of all these things that are really going to be the solution. There's no like one right way. Like socialism in of itself isn't going to save us. But there are some aspects of kind of communal ownership that do make sense. There are some aspects of, of a safety net and public, public owned goods that make a lot of sense. And that has to be part of the solution. And the free market in and of itself isn't going to save us. But there's a lot of things around innovation, entrepreneurship and, and private sector and, and prop. Like there's some things there that make a lot of sense that have to be part of, of, of any solution, et cetera, et cetera. So I, in terms of of Stockton, I, I think there's so much, so much talent and brilliance and exceptionalism. Um, it's just to your point, figuring out how do we ratchet that up and connect that with opportunity. Um, because the folks who are hustling now in the city um, are really exceptional, doing crazy things and self-taught and self-educated with very little resources or in an environment that oftentimes cannot be that is not that conducive to growth. So I think part of it's figuring out how to connect them to opportunities through banks, microlending, et cetera. But I think also it goes to like real granular level. So one of my big dreams, which we'll see if we get there um, post-COVID, but one of my big dreams is at some point to have every kid in Stockton um, in the first two years of life just take the ACES screening, the adverse childhood experience screening. And not to say like, oh, these kids have all this trauma, they're going to have these terrible ends, but to say we know a lot of our kids are growing up in, with average childhood experiences, so we can identify who those kids are, but then we also have antidotes to that trauma, that we also have a, a cadre of resources and, and, and supports ready to meet those children so that when they're, so they grow up as normal as possible and are able to realize their brilliance and genius and not have their brain development adversely impacted. So that that's that's probably an answer to your previous question about the UBI thing. I think universal ACES meetings would be amazing. And if that's paired with actual kind of proven interventions to help with those adverse childhood experiences while we work to change the environment would be huge. So that that that's kind of what what I'm not even sure I answered your question, but that's absolutely no. You totally did, and that's actually it's like these are in you know if you're a repeat repeat listener of the podcast, I apologize. Like I feel bad because I always come back to this idea of practical radicalism. I guess that's just like the people that I'm most you know inspired by and into. It's not like what was the sexiest idea, what got the most sort of shares. It's that you know doing you know aces screening and tracking and applying programs. You know what's the statistic? Like ninety percent of of violent and sexual assaults and crimes are carried out by people that were violently and sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, and I also find that, you know, often people that have gone through really terrible experiences or really trying psychological anxiety, um, you know, when, when they do get to the other side, it gives them a superpower of empathy and sympathy. And I really appreciate you letting me do the rapid fire. I'm, I'm curious, you know, and, and as we, as we wrap up, you know, just, just as you know, this, you're, you're really an amazing guy. And like, you know, most, I was always taught from, you know, growing up in Texas and from my family's exposure to politics that the most important thing a politician could do is get re get reelected. And I always, you know, appreciated that that was clearly not your agenda. It's not for ego. It's not for power. It's not for any of these, these, and it's very obvious. I think that anybody that hears you 
and meets you, um, you know, that comes across. I want to know, you know, who, who deserves more credit? Who do you look up to and who do you think of that are like either historical or current leaders and, and why, what are the, what are the traits that you admire? I'm laughing because my staff, that's one of the things they hate most about me. They're like, well, that's good, but you're in a political office and you try to act like you, you care about getting reelected. But in, in terms, and I, and I do, but I just feel like the work should speak anyway. Um, in terms of answering your, your your question, one of my two of my biggest heroes um, who are still with us, aside from my mom, my aunt, and grandmother, are Marion Wright Elderman from the Children's Defense Fund and um, Reverend Jim Lawson, um, who's actually in LA. Um, so Marion Wright Elderman, she's one of my role models because she like she's been doing this work for so long. She was one of the first. Black woman admitted to Yale Law School. She was a student of Howard Zinn at Spelman, did participate in the sit-ins. She became the first Black woman admitted to the Mississippi State Bar. She brought Robert Kennedy down to Mississippi for the Poor People's Campaign. This was all before the 30. Um, she ended up giving Hillary Clinton her first job after law school. She ended up starting the Defense Fund, has been doing child advocacy and poverty advocacy for the last 50 years. And it's like not tired. And like, I remember when I was younger, she told me I was complaining about something. And she looked at me and she said, Tubbs, it's a privilege to struggle for justice. It's a privilege to be entrusted with the opportunity to struggle um, for where we should be. And she went through like all these folks throughout history who had did the same thing. And she said, so the fact that you're able to do the work that they did, it's a real, real blessing. And I was like, wow, shifted my whole perspective. And she's still working to this day. And then Reverend Jim Lawson as well, another, uh, he's like 90 years old, clear voice for justice, clear voice for, um, for, for organizing, clear voice for where we need to go. Um, and he just taught, and he, he, but he is so humbled. Um, he selected me for some fellowship he was giving and was like, very effusive with the words he was using. And I'm like, I, I cut him off. It's like, Jim, no, like, stop. Like you are. Reverend Lawson, you helped teach the Nashville sitting people about civil disobedience. You helped, you're one of the people that were helping advise Dr. King, like, stop, like, there's nothing I'm done, I'm doing that's that cool. But he's just so humble. And he's like, no, actually, and he just sees everyone's humanity. And he, and I think for those two people in particular, give me such perspective, just around sort of the moment we're in um, is a moment that's, different in many respects, but it's also very similar to moments they were in before. And in some ways have more tools, more opportunities, more leverage than they had back then to even get us to this place now. So those two. And then the last one would be uh, a Stockton native who's still alive, um, just turned 90 years old. Um, I think she's going to kill me for her birthday wrong in terms of age. Miss Dolores Hortha. She was in Stockton for Get Out the Vote weekend for the primaries like campaigning for me and others. Like, like, what? Like, just so full of hope, so full of life, who after all they... And for those that don't know, she was the co-founder of the National Farm Workers Association. Co-worker of the National Farm Workers Association. But so humble. And I think for all three of them, they're all pushing almost 90 years old. And because I have this fantasy in my head that when I'm 50, I can retire. And then I meet them. I'm like, oh, damn, that's not happening. Like, they, they're still <laughs> going and still kicking and not, they don't come off as know-it-alls, like, you don't know what you're doing. They're not condescending. They're, they're, they're righteously angry, with their, but they're super optimistic despite everything they've seen. And I'm like, wow, 
So those three really are kind of my North Stars in terms of, is the work I'm doing right? Am I actually moving the ball forward? Are my motives pure? Um, so, I, I, yeah, I love them. Well, Mike, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. You're in you're a real, you know, exemplary leader in the way in which you carry yourself and how you focus on, you know, the results, you know, and I I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast today and for your service. You know, it's it's really inspiring. And uh know that, you know, I'm here and if if we wanted to support the programs that you're running in Stockton, um, where would we go? Where would we find more information? If you want to support any of the programs in Stockton, you can go to reinventstockton.org. That's the um website for the Reinvent Stockton Foundation, which runs a lot of the programs. There's a fiscal home for a lot of the programs. Um, from the Universal Scholarship Program, we cost off the scholars to the basic income program, um, to the violence reduction program. If you're interested on the political stuff, you go to michaeltubbs2020.com because um, I am also on the ballot in November and I have to do a better job, as my staff says, about letting people know that I'm running again. Could use some. And we need you to get reelected. Get reelected. Um, so michaeltubbs2020.com for political help or we even stopped in that word for kind of civic help. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the... If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind-the-scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.